Hey everybody, this is Joshua Heston. And I'm Lisa Martin. And this is the Dark Ozarks on the Branson Podcast Network. We're an exploration of everything that's dark in history, mysteries, the paranormal, and everything else. We explore the noir, the unknown, cryptozoology, UFOs, paranormal, and all the dark stuff that happens in the Ozarks. You can find Dark Ozarks on Branson Podcast Network on Facebook under Dark Ozarks, as well as our YouTube channel, Dark Ozarks. We'll leave no stone unturned to bring you the dark history, mysteries, and legends of the Ozarks. Welcome to the Dark Ozarks. We are discussing experience of early immigrants in the Ozarks and the effect of the Scots-Irish on the Ozarks. We will get back to that in a minute, but first we want to remind you that the Dark Ozarks podcast is now available on Branson Podcast Network, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Google Podcasts, or about any other podcast platform. So how did the old world and its traditions prepare people for the frontier of the Ozarks? There are several possible answers, really. The Scotch-Irish found the landscape very familiar to their homes in the old country. Many of their traditions and myths dealt with problems in a difficult environment. Many of their skills and customs were uniquely tailored to taming the Ozarks. It is a hard choice. We will return to the question of how the Scots-Irish adapted to and settled in the Ozarks, but first we want to invite you to like, follow, and subscribe to Dark Ozarks on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, as well as your favorite podcast platform. We also invite you to become a Dark Ozarks subscriber here on Facebook. On the Dark Ozarks Facebook page, click subscribe, have your login information ready and join Dark Ozarks behind the scenes for only $4.99 a month. Your $4.99 per month subscription allows you to come with us on paranormal investigations, deep dive research, and topics too controversial for public view. The next 100 subscribers will be entered in a drawing for a free Dark Ozarks t-shirt and an exclusive signed first-run copy of the book Dark Ozarks The Spooklight. Subscribe today to be entered in the drawing. And now you can get Dark Ozarts t-shirts for sale at darkozarts.com and paranormalsciencelab.com. We encourage you to check out Always Buying Books in Joplin, Missouri, in person and online on Facebook and at the website alwaysbuyingbooks.com for all your reading needs, including a large section on the paranormal, history, and more. Not to mention, the building is haunted. Tell Bob and Elise that we sent you. We also want to thank Beard Engine Brewing Company in Alba, Missouri. Beard Engine Brewing is the only English-style brewery in Missouri and has been twice named Missouri's best brewery by the Missouri Brewers Association. Great beer and great food in a historical building with a noir past. And yes, their building is also haunted. Tell Nate and Tiff that we sent you. <laughs> oh, so I'll just uh, get people mad right off the bat. Scotch Irish. What? Not Scots Irish? <laughs> if you say it fast, no one will know the difference anyway. Exactly. We'll just breeze right over that. Uh, but <laughs> I have, have on occasion been taken to task on social media for a couple of articles on State of the Ozarks. 
mm-hmm. that uh, use the term Scotch Irish. And uh, considering how much I love Scotch, I am still baffled at the idea that it could be considered a negative term. But as we were discussing over on YouTube a few moments ago, one of our, you and I, first um, social media entanglements, I suppose, uh, was someone um, reprimanding me, as they want to do, on uh, social media, and you, with a uh, illustrious Scottish ancestry, taking them to task, saying that it, the term Scotch-Irish is just fine, although you and I use both terms interchangeably. We, we do, we do. And um, and to be perfectly frank, the people who with a lot of Scot- Scottish ancestry will refer to themselves as the Scotch as well. Um, and, and part of that is taking on the banner of all the qualities of being Scottish and I think, and claiming Scotch for ourselves instead of Irish. It's Irish. I yes. <laughs> I'd have to, you know, I'm jesting a bit, but it's true, you know. And so um, it, it, it's, a, it's a personal preference, you know. Um, and and, and either it is a threat. It, it's, it is an older term. It's a term that has been used. Mm-hmm really throughout uh, American history. Yes. And, and I think that I think that a certain amount of honor is due in that regard, while understanding that both terms are perfectly legitimate. That, that's, I mean, and that, and that is, that's true. Um, so whichever way we tend to say it tonight, um, you, you can hear it whichever way you prefer. Absolutely. After, after, you know, the, the, the online social media arguments that have you know, occurred, I've almost trained myself not to say Scotch-Irish, but I think I'm just going to be uh, a, a recalcitrant Celt and <laughs> belligerently say Scotch-Irish uh, just to, uh, to irritate people for the duration of the episode, perhaps. And um, now I, I'm, I'm assuming I'm doing so with your blessing as someone with great Scottish ancestry. Oh, certainly. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and I, uh, that said, I, to my knowledge, I don't actually have Scottish ancestry, although I have very, very strong Celtic ancestry uh, in my Welsh and some Irish lineage. There you go. Well, just, you know, go back far enough, we're all the same people. Well, this is true, but some some people groups share a certain characteristics and traits, which might not be a bad place to start with this. That's uh, true. And uh, and the Celts, uh, well, <clears throat> just for clarification, to prove that I actually do know what I'm talking about, uh, the, the Celtic diaspora, of course, the Celts moved into um, what we know as Celtic nations um, in around 700 BC. And mm-hmm. uh, they were the uh semi-nomadic horse peoples uh from uh, what we think of now as uh as far eastern europe and uh the steppes of eastern europe not to be confused with uh some of the other groups in far eastern europe but they built up a would 
empire is not the right word, but civilization north of the mm-hmm. Alps. And uh, the Rome, Romans were very, Romans and the Greeks were very familiar with the Celts, uh, mm-hmm. mostly in commercial trading, sometimes in war, and occasionally running away screaming when they attempted to sack Delphi. So, Rome. Yeah, and also Rome. And uh, uh, Julius Caesar instigated a, a dramatic and incredibly bloody war against the Celts in continental Europe, uh, mostly for PR. Mm-hmm. It would have been himself politically, but basically. Yes. And so, you know, some things don't change. But <laughs> the, uh, the um when when the, something that gets confusing again the celts were a people group they were not a unified uh nation or empire they were disparate groups of clans of tribes uh each with their own names um each with similar a similar language group but their own dialects etc and their own ways of looking at the, but the, the people group was con- relatively unified by a similar perspective, a similar set of characteristics. And mm-hmm. uh, after the devastating wars with Rome, uh, we see the, the remnants, quote unquote, of the Celts really pushed to the far Western regions of their uh, comparatively new, and by new meaning a thousand years, uh, homeland of Northern Europe into what we now recognize as Great Britain and Mm -hmm. and the United Kingdom. And and during that time, we ultimately see somewhat, comparatively speaking, uh, exception being Boudicca, some more mm, peaceful interaction with Rome, because uh, modern-day Britain, south of Hadrian's Wall, south of Scotland, became a Roman province, and mm-hmm. that did figure heavily into the Romano Britons, uh, which we now recognize largely as the Welsh. And mm-hmm. well, I may have some some Italian back there. You never know. Uh, a long nice. way back there. <laughs> long way back there. But uh, in that regard we now have a, a recognized Celtic diaspora uh, mm-hmm. that includes, but is not limited to, uh, Wales, uh, Cornwall, Scotland, Ireland, uh, to some degree, the Isle of Man, mm-hmm. uh, to some degree, uh, of course, uh, Breton, and, yeah. um, and uh, northern or northwestern Spain. Mm-hmm. And all, all of those peoples do share uh, a common ancient cultural heritage. And for a variety of reasons, those were also peoples who were mm, ambitious to cross the Atlantic and uh, help found, in many cases, what we now recognize as the United States. Yes. Um, and in fact, um... Apart from English, once you you get start getting English settlement, um, those groups were the second largest group of settlers. Very much so, and as we'll discuss tonight, had uh, dramatic reasons to be leaving England 
Mm-hmm. And you know, my uh, my Welsh forebears uh, arrived in North Carolina in 1725. Uh, your Scottish forebears arrived a bit earlier than that. Yeah, um, 1640s uh, and then 16 um, 60s for some of them, um, and ended up uh, landing in New Amsterdam, or later became New York, uh, Massachusetts. Uh, then some ended up going more south through the Carolinas uh, and into Appalachia. And then uh, others ended up coming the northern route through Ohio and over. So, yes. <clears throat> so now we've got, we've established the Scots, we've established the Irish, mm-hmm. uh, we've discussed the, the Welsh. Um, we haven't gotten to Cornish Pixies yet, or Cornish Pasties, and we better not confuse those two. Um, <laughs> it's not a good company, not not a good thing to confuse. But now we have the issue of the Scotch Irish. Yes, and I think you know a lot of people um, will have a misconception that Scotch Irish just means that your background is a mixture of Irish and and. Scots. Um, and it's not quite that simple. Uh, very much, very much not. Of course, it goes back to King James I. And mm-hmm. uh, I, I love this era. I'm probably glad that I'm not in this era because I would have died of dysentery or something. Or, doing or just got on the wrong side of the king. <laughs> I, I would have gotten on the wrong side of somebody and, you know, been strung up by my toes. But <clears throat> I, I do love the, the the overlapping of the foundings of Ulster and the Ulster Plantation, which is a difficult time in history. Much like everything else that we talk about in the Dark Ozarks, there are no easy answers. And the interactions, the mm, hundreds and hundreds of years, the generations of conflict that occur between uh, England and Ireland, England and Scotland, basically your uh, <laughs> aristocratic Norman uh, invaders with their castles and their uh, Roman grid systems and their French language, which we have partially inherited. Mm-hmm. And then our, our Celtic peoples, it was bound to create conflict and and still does but it's uh under under king james the first early 1600s um northern ireland the uh, not originally nine and now recognized six counties of northern ireland that were becoming particularly troublesome in the early 1600s uh, really troublesome to the king <laughs> trouble yes uh and and of course i think that the the Trouble, of course, had been brewing for a bit in terms of the, the interrelationship. And, and of course, Queen Elizabeth, who I'm a huge fan of, did not have positive uh, thoughts about Catholic Ireland. No. Well, of course, a lot of, a lot of that had to do with the, the Catholic portion and, mm-hmm. and her own circumstances, which... 
understandable. <laughs> understandable. <laughs> it was. And, and it, After it all, our mother lost her head. <laughs> yes. It, it is one of these things that you, when you look at any of these situations in the macro, uh, you're, you're oftentimes baffled going, why, why do you people hate each other? Why are you trying to kill each other? What are you trying to do? Why are you trying to take this land? Why are you trying to supplant these people? So on and so forth. But then you break it down into the micro and, mm-hmm. and understand where these various peoples were coming from, why they were making the decisions that they were making. And as is so often the case, I think this, these conflicts are a great example. There were, you know, you put yourself in the place of person A on one side and you can say, oh, now I can, maybe it wasn't a great decision, but it, it was the decision that made sense in the moment to accomplish purpose A that mm-hmm. in some cases, in the case of Queen Elizabeth and, you know, to, to a degree, King James I, uh, certainly Elizabeth more so, uh, you know, let's let's uh, not only continue to sit on the on the throne, but let's not die. Yeah. And then you move to the uh, uh, the ancestral uh, Irish in Northern mm-hmm. Ireland, and suddenly the story becomes vastly different because what happened was plantation. Yes, um, although. You have to look at that without some of the connotation that we have in North America. You do. And in this case, it was for early 1600 standards, the implementation of large scale farming. Yes. And the implementation of the large scale farmers in the form of predominantly Presbyterian Scots. Yes. Not uh, mostly, but not limited to. Um, it was pretty much as long as you're uh, as long as you're under the English crown and not Catholic, um, you're in if you want to apply, and we have space for you. So, <clears throat> the the original nine counties we now recognize as six counties of of Ulster, what is now. Northern Ireland, which really mm-hmm. speaks to just how long-lasting uh, these uh, decisions have continued to impact European history, Western civilization, and North America, is yes. those boundary lines are still there. Because we have Northern Ireland, which is part of the United Kingdom, uh, and then we have the Republic of Ireland, which is everything that is Irish that is not Northern Ireland. And we still have large, uh, you know, the mm, religious slash political mm-hmm. uh, dividing lines of Protestant versus Catholic. And this is really where all of this began for people who are mm, confused as to the religious wars. And, 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 um... You know, one could say, well, even, even if why why did why did James transplant so many Scots to Northern Ireland or to Ulster? Um, because we joked earlier that you know the crown of England should have have seen that um, the Scots would not always. Um, would not necessarily um, 
play ball the way that the Crown would want them to over time because of past history. But again, looking at the situation, James was the first monarch of a united crown. True. And he was Scottish. He for, first and foremost, he was the Scottish king. And so mm -hmm. these were, you know, his lords and his aristocracy that he sent to Ireland. But Scots being Scots, they didn't necessarily say, okay, whatever for the next hundred years. No, no, they did not. And uh, by 715, uh, the Anglican church establishment had gotten to the point uh, the Presbyterians could not hold civil or military office, nor could Presbyterians be married by their own Presbyterian ministers. Mm -hmm. And and there were there there was a a similar wasn't as drastic as in Ulster, but similar things that happened in Scotland as well. And um, when we talk about more of the traditional beliefs and when we talk about Celtic holidays and, and pre-Christian traditions um, lasting in the, in the UK, they actually lasted the longest with Presbyterians. That is fascinating. I love that. And um, um, it was the English over time uh, tried to stamp out those traditions and um, where those those traditions had faded long ago in England they held firm in Scotland up even into the mid 20th century in places which I think really speaks to the tenacity of the Celts mm -hmm. to maintain tradition even as an oral tradition in many cases yes and by, oh, really by, by the mid 1700s, the, uh, the, the Northern Ireland plantation, Presbyterians had really were not, they had extremely limited capacity to export their, uh, their goods. And, right. Or we're talking about uh, a, you know, a pretty dramatic uh, agricultural settlement, uh, high quality linens, uh, woolen uh, manufacture, we're talking um, raising flax, we're talking about uh, sheep, we're talking about <clears throat> a lot of uh, produce. And of course, uh, you know, agricultural products that were the lifeblood of the plantation, which is interestingly enough, what they were founded for. Mm -hmm. And suddenly, for a variety of reasons, a variety of complex and interesting uh, trade agreement reasons, um, being stripped of their market, and right. and at the same time being having their market continually controlled uh, by the British Crown, mm -hmm. and so that so now that we've established how the Scotch Irish came to be, and it's interesting because the. Uh, at the time, the, the Scots were certainly not fond of the Irish. The Irish despised the Scots as supplanters of their ancestral land. And yet we've created this group 
that said, there was certainly, as has always been, because there, there's been multiple uh, attempts by by England to do this to Ireland. Mm -hmm. uh, Northern Northern the, the establishment of the Ulster plantation was not the first. Um, a, a, an earlier quote unquote invasion uh, took place, predominantly centered around Dublin. Uh, not mm -hmm. long after the Norman invasion, I believe in the 1100s. And, I believe so. And in, in that case, and it's one of the reasons why these long um, you know, thousand year old Irish dynasties often have uh, Norman English last names. Mm -hmm. And, but it, I, I find it fascinating and pretty epic really because the invaders come along they they establish the, the the fortifications, the pale uh, for for people who are interested in the term beyond the pale. Uh, the pale was a palisade uh, mm -hmm. that uh, surrounded a comparatively small portion of Ireland, encircling Dublin. And the idea that the uh, Celtic barbarians were beyond the fence, the fence being called the pale, and that term has continued uh, to be passed down in, as, a, as, a, as an English colloquialism, but uh, those establishing uh, French or Franco-English, uh, the Norman knights and the cavalry that came over and uh, brought civilization it wasn't long before they had intermarried with the uh, the ancestral Irish and became more Irish than the Irish and were soon fighting the English all over again. Yes. Yes, and um, that, uh, that just tended to happen. It did, <laughs> over and over <laughs> and over. And we definitely see that with Ulster Plantation. Mm-hmm. Um, because the, the Irish people were not removed from plantation. They were removed from their lands. Right. Uh, they were not removed from the space itself. And, and you know, just diving into that for a moment, I really think that this also speaks to uh, the mindset that many of these people brought with them when they came to North America. And for the record, uh, you know, mm, 80 to 50 to 20 years later uh, was was galvanizing them in their hatred against the British when they joined the American Revolution and um, helped create uh, the United States. Yes. That, that uh, the, the extraordinary indignity of, of essentially having a far off um, crown mm -hmm. Uh, remove you against your will mm -hmm. from your ancestral lands and you watch as uh, people you don't know in in some many cases speaking a language that you don't particularly appreciate right um, come in and take your take your property and and then over time those that came in then some of them ended up resenting the crayon as well and mm -hmm. very quickly actually about 100 years and and there was of course uh, cross-pollination not only of ideas but of ancestries that your you know your your ancestral irish in 
in Ulster, in many cases were, uh, were leaders, uh, were, were Irish aristocracy, were, were individuals of leadership and power. And suddenly they had been not only removed from their lands, but suddenly transformed to second class servants. Yes. It, it uh, tends to engender a little bit of resentment. Yes. And, and there are, uh, of course, and we'll talk about this too, uh, layers of Irish uh, immigration and settlement in mm -hmm. the United States, as well as layers of Scottish uh, uh, immigration and settlement. But by 1775, we are looking at an extraordinary exodus of the Scotch-Irish into America. Mm -hmm. We are. Um, um, I think before we forget to mention it, we might want to talk about um, King Billy just a little bit because <laughs> the Scotch-Irish, when they get over here, you know, end up being called hillbillies, um, but it's not because they're in the hills. And no. so- Well, it is and it isn't. Uh, they're called billies. Eventually it is, but- <laughs> Yes. And uh, I, I really love this. And it, it really speaks to the fact that we use our language, we use terms, we use colloquialisms without really having any idea where they come from. That happens an awful lot. And, and the term hillbilly is one of those. We'll, we'll be talking about a lot about that tonight. And of course, there's a consistent conflict as to whether the term hillbilly is, uh, is an epithet, whether it's derogatory, whether it's flattering. Um, I, I, for the record, uh, do consider myself to be one. And I am not remotely offended if somebody were to, to call me that. And I find the, the gimmick and the shtick of uh, 20th century tourism to be extraordinarily fun. I think it is, it is, it is an interesting and extraordinary part of our local history, our regional culture. And it has to be accepted as such that it's, it, it simply is and you know you can you can be dismayed by it but as, as a general rule being offended by something really doesn't help much no and in in, in fact um um being amused by it really goes back to the character of the scotch irish anyway uh of being economical in their language and a little salty and understated um dry wit um, you know, call, call me hillbilly if you want, but, um, and, um, but the, the idea of what a billy was, I think, because, okay, the hill part, yes, you're in the hills, but what is a billy? <laughs> and, of course, from, from this aspect, and I, for the record, I love this because there are so many people who are potentially offended by the term hillbilly who are unaware of the etymological origins 
mm-hmm. of hillbilly and who, we're spe- who we are specifically speaking of is King William the Third. Yes. Um, Protestant king. Mm-hmm. I believe William the Second in Scotland. I believe so. I'd have to and, I'd have to look, but I believe so. And as as a uh, as a as a successful Protestant king, he was a figurehead and a hero of the Protestant Ulster Scots. Yes. Uh, also, his color was orange. Yes, <laughs> yes. Uh, which hence you know, William of Orange. Um, but they um, so since they were fans of the king, they were referred to as Billies. Yes, because you were a fan of King Billy, and mm-hmm. you were and you identified with your hero, Protestant King Billy. Uh, you were referred mm-hmm. to as a Billy. And it was a ubiquitous term for the Protestant Ulster Scots. And it continued to be a term after they crossed the Atlantic. And another, you know, and and that leads into another term that often is applied to hillbillies is redneck. And um, many people uh, would be surprised in America to know that is another term basically associating them with billies uh, because they tended to wear red scarves. Has nothing to, you know, I've heard people say, oh, it's because they they were dirt farmers and they 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 worked outside, so the red nets nets were red from the sun. And that's not where the term comes from. No, no. And I I I really I really love this. Um, because we're we're dating back to it, a, a um, political and religious and sociological affiliation um, with, and I, I love the 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 collective title, which I have not memorized in case anybody's wondering, but still I do love it. Um, William the Third, William Hendrick. Um, known as William of Orange, Sovereign Prince of Orange, Stockholder of Holland, Zeeland, Utrecht, Gilders, and Overyssel in the Dutch Republic, King of England, Ireland, and Scotland, as well as King of Scotland. <laughs> that's uh, that's um, a pretty prestigious um, cultural ancestry it is it is and a mouthful uh yes i'm i before the year is out i am just going to memorize that uh along (laughs) to remember to quiz you (laughs) yes exactly i will i will memorize it and then if anybody says that that um my uh my hillbilly title is derogatory and i shouldn't be using it i'm just going to refer them to king william the third there you go king billy Billy. and and i think it really it really speaks to the fact of just how much of course 50 by 1775 50 percent of ulster had left for north america yes we're we're talking about a mass immigration uh, which of course speaks to 
how badly um, the Scotch-Irish felt that the, their situation, their economic uh, situation, their personal sovereignty was being, was being handled by the crown at that time. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Going for the uh, complete unknown was better than the known. Yes. And oh, of course, this is the mid 19th century. Well, or mid uh, 18th century, by the mid 19th century, we're going to be seeing a similar uh, exodus from Ireland as a whole because of the potato famine, which was also initiated by um, trade management uh, and export management. Mm -hmm. um, we, we oftentimes, and it's, you know, neither here nor there in this particular discussion, but it was um political and economic decisions being made in london that was really causing the famine um yeah because it, it, it was pretty much manufactured famine it was a manufactured famine it wasn't a manufactured potato blight no um, but there's a you know you can look up the the extraordinary list of you know the boatloads and the shiploads of food that was actually exported from Ireland during the famine. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The, the the common folks never had an opportunity to see. Exactly, but again, that led to another wave of of uh, immigration. Yes, it did, which also impacted the Ozarks. But coming back to our our scotch irish uh extraordinary impact on first of all on the united states but or the formation of the united states but we're also talking about a people who largely decried cities these were individuals they were uh their goals their vision uh for the future were were being yeoman farmers Mm -hmm. And and the opportunity to be a yeoman farmer uh, was uh, most financially expedient, meaning you could afford the land, on the edges of frontier. Very true. And I, I think it's one thing to note, too, that so often uh, people make assumptions that this group were uh, were uh, uneducated, unsophisticated, etc., but actually they were the probably the most um, educated overall uh, of any of the groups in Great Britain, in, in the British Isles. Um, certainly, certainly from a perspective of literacy, yes, without yes. question. Yes, and so you were not dealing, you know, the, some of the stereotypes that, that people assume later on in America of this group are misnomers. They really are. Um, and this is a group of people when you think about it, I mean, um, there's a, a, a quote from John Fisk, who is a very influential hist American historian um, of the late 19th century, early 20th century, that, um, as he, as he put it, that the, these are people who leave the land of their birth because they refuse to submit to oppression by church or state and who are unafraid of the hazards awaiting them in a new land. And 
and he says that they're among the best of their kind. Um, for instance, when they when they left Scotland for Ulster, they then quit Ulster for America, and again they followed the frontier in America. At each point, this is a group who are willing to set out and walk away from what's comfortable, and yeah. and I think that that is. Um, one, a defining characteristic that, again, uh, was very crucial at various stages in, in our history from the revolution on. It, it was, and, <clears throat> and it, it became, it, it can be easily argued that it is a defining characteristic of the American frontier. Yes. Uh, I mean, it is the genesis of the idea of American individualism. It is. It is. And they had plenty of reasons to, uh, to, uh, to form arguments uh, against authoritarianism. Yes. Yes. Uh, firsthand arguments. And retold over generations. Yes. And, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're talking about the Celts. We're talking about a, an individual... It's really a, a, an extraordinary um, combination or, or, uh, or, or convergence because something that is characteristic in the Celts is, um, first of all, ancestral memory. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the original Celts were, and you could argue uh, that the, to a degree, the uh, traditions of American settlement and frontier through the Scotch-Irish are mm, the, the hints of a Celtic empire. It's sort of an interesting way of putting it, but yeah. Uh, and, and my thought on this is that um, in the you know, 2000 years ago, uh, the Celts had this, this extraordinary vision for um, really not only for, for just the dynamics of, um, of life, but also an extraordinary vision in terms of metaphysics, in terms of um, individuality, in terms of, you know, sovereignty, personal sovereignty, these sorts of things. But in their conflict with Rome, what they did not have was unification. True. And in their, their lack of unification was also based on the fact that the Celts were quote unquote illiterate, that it's crucial to understand that illiteracy did not mean that they were not thinking or that they were not sophisticated. They had highly sophisticated ways of communication, but they did not have a written language that right. was an oral language uh, tradition, not a written language tradition, and highly sophisticated, but different, and uh, at the time, unable to adapt to uh, the, the, the onslaught of, mm -hmm. a, uh, of an organ highly organized uh, people who also had a written um, language tradition. Thank you, Phoenicians. But uh, <laughs> uh, 
Carthage and your your elephants. Anyway, um, but uh, <laughs> hi Hannibal. I do think <laughs> we've, got, we've got Hannibal and Carthage both here in Missouri, so I'm sure there's a tie-in to that. Oh well, yeah. Well, I, actually, every Carthage in in North America is named after Carthage in Africa. Yes. Um, I just like saying the the Carthaginians. Um, I'm I'm going to start. I'm just going to start randomly referring to people in Carthage Carthaginians. Okay. Um, so, but what was interesting was that through the distillation distilla, distillation process that took place, by the time that the Celts are arriving en masse um, mm -hmm. through, through essentially um, as, as a Scotch Irish, they were unified in terms of language and religion. That's true. That is true. And it could be argued that they built empire in North America. Oh, I, I, th I think you, I, I think um, that that's very, very true. I mean, um, they were, as a group, very instrumental in the uh, revolution. Uh, big segment of of the army was Scotch Irish, um, and um, they they retained that sense of independence, but adherence to the cause of independence through the Constitution, etc. Over time, even as they many migrated west and south and people often get um, confused by the fact that there were pockets of of federal or union supporters far below the Mason-Dixon line and that happened here in Missouri um, happened other places as well um, and it, it's the Scotch-Irish who, although their personality as a people pretty much defined honor culture in the South, they were still adherents to the federal government. Right. <clears throat> and that's, there, there, there's very interesting uh, dualities at work throughout this entire process that I find really, really fascinating. Are you there? Yeah, I'm back. Okay. okay. Uh, dynamics within the, the, the dichotomy of this that I find really, really fascinating. And, but again, that is, of course, some of it is simply human nature as a whole, but some of it is, I think, the, the acceptance, the, the innate acceptance of duality mm -hmm. that is, is perpetuated through the Celtic mindset. And we see that uh, with this, this mm, constant walking of liminal space that, for example, uh, fully embracing the zeal of the of upright Presbyterianism mm -hmm. and at the same time capable of fully embracing 
um, clan warfare. Mm -hmm. Very true. And just as a very concrete example, in the Ozarks, um, if you look at the Civil War, if you look at the sort of how people ended up dividing their their allegiances, it, it's very apparent, in, particularly in um, Missouri, uh, because you you didn't just have a pro-Confederate or secessionist view and a strong union view, you had three. Um, and that third group uh, were union, they, they favored staying in the union, um, but just, and they didn't, but we don't care about, you know, I don't care about what happens in the, the other Southern states, you know, let them do what they want, but we, support the union. Um, and so where in, in the Eastern theater, it very much was a dichotomy of allegiance. You had three here. And so it would be, it was not that uncommon even in areas that had say a strong Southern leaning um, that you would have a group that would be very staunch supporters of, of, of the Union. Um, right before the Battle of Carthage is an example when the Union troops came into town, they're getting booed and people um, you know, were uh, even spitting on them, et cetera. And then you had some, uh, particularly the former Sheriff uh, Hood and his, his family, the daughters were staying on the front porch and teenage daughter lifts her petticoat, her, her skirt or her petticoats with the, with the stars and stripes on it uh, while people in the street are spitting on the soldiers. Mm -hmm. um, there's in the material I noticed there was a very similar incident that happened in Alabama. Yes. Um, so that that is that spirit of that of that group that and I, I agree it is a duality and one one of the areas that i think is in uh, important to take into consideration we have and this was uh, actually a reference uh, it was a reference <laughs> I guess I will note that that's not to say that all Scott, Scots Irish um, ended up being union supporters by no means, but. Right, right. And, 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 and we see, again, we see very various aspects and coming back to the beginnings of Ulster Plantation, even the, the, the um, preliminary moments during the reign of Queen Elizabeth that you look at it in macro and these things don't make sense. You look at it in micro and you can begin to understand what was going mm -hmm. on. Uh, great article um, about this subject by uh, Fred de, Mar de Armand, uh, published in White River Valley Historical Quarterly. But it really makes uh, an interesting point talking about how, uh, for example, in Pennsylvania, um, the Scotch-Irish 
population intermingled heavily with the Quakers and the German um, uh, mm -hmm. settlers. That <clears throat> then also that farther south, and I'm going to quote for a minute so that if you get mad, you can get mad at Fred back in 1971 and not at me. Um, it's on page seven of our notes, but um, farther south, quote, in Virginia and the Carolinas, they crossed the path of the English Cavalier type and the bond servant element that formed the nucleus of what came to be known as the poor white trash of the South. There was bred into the Southern Highlanders a certain shiftlessness foreign to the nature of the Ulster immigrants. Perhaps here we have an explanation of why some hill farmers will still splash through the same mud hole from road to barn lot for 40 years when a wagon load of their abundant rock crop would bridge it permanently." End quote. And I think it's important to, uh, to bring this into discussion because one of, we, we, we've established that there's a, an illustrious uh, ancestry to the name Hillbilly in terms of its historical and cultural significance and lineage. At the same time, we, uh, a lot of the reasons that the term hillbilly is regarded as derogatory, is considered offensive, is because it has certain cultural connotations by some people. And what I just read is uh, in direct reference to the, uh, the negative connotations. Yes. And I think that that, I think it, it, you can't, you really can't have the discussion about hillbillies without um, facing, facing those issues as a whole uh, and, and looking at them contextually. No, I agree. The, other thing that I found really funny, if I can find it again, um, was, of course, the, the quote by um, uh, Rayburn, Otto <laughs> Ernest Rayburn. And, you know, I think he is the one who first, uh, noting the, the, the negative connotations associated with the term hillbilly, coined the term hill folk and said that we'd rather be called hill folk. And that is a, a terminology that certainly has been perpetuated to the modern era. And it's one that you certainly see um, in more rarefied circles, as opposed to those of just commonplace everyday folks here in the hills. That's true. And, and um, I, uh... I was just sitting here thinking, I, I, I was remembering an instance of, of someone using that uh, term uh, a few years ago. And in context, it was almost jolting because you just, it's like, what? <laughs> I, I would agree. It, it definitely, it has its... Mm, it, it has a very strong um, academic, and you might even go as far as to say politically correct connotation to the term. And 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 I think that that's part of the problem um, is that it it, it um, 
it smacks of that to the point it, it smacks of um, being patronizing. And <clears throat> or can. It, it can, uh, which I think is important uh, for, for individuals to, to consider, uh, especially when, and, and I think that it also speaks to the fact that, and I, I want to dig into this, but this, the, um, sort of the, 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 uh, referenced cavalier, um, bondsman culture that appears to have de developed, uh, in the, uh, around Virginia and moving south that there, there there's there is a duality here we have um, a, a scotch irish population who are extraordinarily uh, hardworking they are extraordinarily um, driven and driven not only in their extraordinary dislike for um, for the crown, uh, for their their somewhat dualistic dislike and embracing of authoritarianism, depending on on uh, you know which government they have their allegiance to, and sort of who they they put their flag behind. Uh, you have an extraordinary uh, Presbyterian zeal. And I think that's something that is is largely lost on uh, on a modern audience, but the fact that uh, mm -hmm. a great deal of of um, Western settlement was established through a religious zeal that mm -hmm. we many in, uh, in in modern society would probably find uh, distasteful in its in its uh, fundamentalism, if you might want to say it that way. Yeah that but it made sense uh and was culturally relevant and culturally important and was held dear uh, by the individuals of that era and mm -hmm. it was part of their identity and it suited it worked well it helped in their survival um this uh this hard-working sober-minded um zealous people who were going to uh, die for their cause, and their cause was the, the the personal right to have their own property and to pass on a lineage to their families. Yes, and um, you know it 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 fundamentally becomes a defining characteristic of of the American mythos. It does, and something that is underlying underlying that Presbyterian zeal uh, and Presbyterian fundamentalism is something that you've already referenced, which I love, which is a, uh, an almost unspoken, but continually maintained uh, adherence to what is essentially ancient Celtic paganism running mm -hmm. right underneath it uh, in terms of superstition, quote unquote, uh, I, I hesitate to use that term, but it's what people would recognize. But it is a, a belief structure in the metaphysical realm mm -hmm. uh, in terms of how the world works. And it is noted particularly in peak threshold moments, uh, birth, death, uh, marriage, um, the uh, 
key points in the season, these mm-hmm. types of things. And we would recognize them as old wives' tales, which is a very, I, I think, a very condescending term, um, because you are talking about a uh, the remnants, the, the oral tradition remnants and the ancestral lineage and the ancestral memory of a, a great mythology, a great belief structure in, in the metaphysical realm. And that's nothing to, uh, to demean as, uh, as just a, and, you know, those, those, silly, those silly backwards people. Uh, it really forms the backbone of what we think of as sort of spooky Ozarks culture. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's very powerful. Well, and it, 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 people can think of it this way. It is really just the flip side of when people say, you know, he, he, you plant in this sign, you do this, you do that, um, which people still do without much question. Yes. Even if, even if intellectually they say, I don't know that this amounts to anything as far as the superstition goes, but, or, or will rationalize, well, it became a superstition because it tends to work season after season. Yes. But uh, I know, I know a lot of people who plant by the, by the sun and plant by the moon signs and mm-hmm. I've planted by the moon signs. Oh yeah. I mean, that's how I was raised. Um, wouldn't think otherwise. <laughs> you know, my mother and grandmothers <laughs> wouldn't have thought otherwise. Um, and so people look at things like that and say, okay. And then the flip side of that thinking, some people go, oh no, that's, you know, you shouldn't do that or, or, or whatever, or, or poo-poo it. Mm-hmm. it. It is. And again, I think that there, there's, to, to some degree, um, the the logical inconsistency or the 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 accepted dichotomy is part human nature. Human beings are complex people, regardless of our ancestry and our lineage. Uh, we do things that contradict the things that we say or the, the mm-hmm. structures that we have. Um, but to me, there there's a a, a Celtic elegance. In the contradictions, I agree, and it, I, I love it. I, I I find a lot of personal solace in simply embracing it rather than fighting it. But you know, and we can you know take, for example, uh, the 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 seeming dichotomy of uh, the the planting of churches, the peacefulness of churches, the, the goal of establishing a peaceful countryside, mm-hmm. um, a peaceful God-fearing land. And the, the same time that uh, a great deal of our uh, American battles uh, were won by Scotch-Irish with long rifles. Mm-hmm. Very true. <laughs> very, very true. Um, and you know some of the, and, and some of the names that have come down as folk heroes, come yes. straight out of Scotch Irish uh, people like David Crockett, 
um, Sam Houston, uh, a lot, a, a lot of um, of what we view as what is a folk hero and or, or a anti-hero um, really comes out of that um, that character. It does, and it's interesting because while offhand i think most of us wouldn't be able to name okay that is um, a scotch irish trait or that is a scotch irish hero um creating himself in america mm -hmm. and certainly the um um the the wit and the uh, poetic use of language for self-promotion and the the creation of one's own myth Mm -hmm. uh, in real time is innate and you, you can recognize it. You can recognize the qualities, but even if you don't know where they come from. Very true, very true. And, and that, that is just, you know, replicates itself um, throughout, especially the American West. Um, it seems like as far as the frontier goes that tended to be characteristic in part because those were the people there. Um, but, uh, you know, from Wild Bill Hickok creating his own myth in real time to, you know, Jesse James and John Edwards basically um, creating the myth of Jesse James um, in unison, um, just over and over it seems to happen. And it's, uh, you know, it's a modern day Cucullin. Huh? It's a modern day Cucullin. It is. <laughs> these, uh, the, these men who are, you know, in the, in the Fenian men, uh, these, these great mm -hmm. warriors who are larger than life. And I think that's, I'm going to digress for a moment, but, you know, coming off of our, uh, our episode, uh, you know, with connecting uh, the the heritage lineage of uh, of Missouri with Texas, mm -hmm. uh, you look at and to some degree I can appreciate um, the um, the concerns about um, taking liberties with actual history in terms of you know the twentieth century mythos of, for example, Davy Crockett. Mm -hmm. uh, although I was you know. For me, it was all about Mike Fink and the Keelboats. But, uh, you know, it is at the same time, you, you, when you look at this, when you look at, um, the, the, for example, the, the Ulster cycle, when you look at the great Irish epics uh, of, of, the, of the ancient era, it's not dissimilar. It, it's not. And then, you know, um, one that comes to mind, uh, the American character, of course, would be Mark Twain. I mean, it mm -hmm. <laughs> so, you know, definitely fits square in, square in there. Um, and you, you just, you know, the, the, these, these larger than life heroic characters with a and I think that there's, uh, although many people would be unfamiliar with Kukulin, um, yeah. 
and depending on the pronunciation, it could also be Kahuven. Um, and, uh, and, and the Hound of Kahuven. Uh, but it is the, and we'll talk about this soon because we're going to do a connection between Irish mythology and, uh, and Ozark culture. But uh, these, these characters really do imbue their characteristics into our American, legendary American characters who are real life people. Yes. And, and I think that's one thing that um, in some ways, it, I mean, I want to say is more unique in, in the North American context is that these bigger than life characters are, are real people and not that long ago. Not that long ago at all. In the, in the, in the larger scope of time and space, it's just been a minute or two. Exactly. We're not talking about, are we talking about a character that may or may not have been real a thousand years ago or thousands of years ago that came down in oral tradition? We're talking a hundred to two hundred years. Yes, individuals that in some cases you can go visit their actual burial sites. Uh, you have, um, you know, works that they have written. Um, we have letters. Li yeah. living descendants often yes it's you know and, and you think about that there's i think it's very easy to overlook the cultural importance of that mythos and realize how special it is that we're actually not that far from it we're not far removed from it now, that's very true i mean sometimes we, we we discuss the fact that being such a young nation um we haven't had time to wrestle with certain things as much as Europe has. And, and so they're a little more at ease with certain things than, than we are. Uh, on the other hand, um, those heroes, even the, the real life ones often are much further removed. And in terms of, uh, of heroic mm, lineage, of course, many of the individuals, uh, well, I, I was going to say of, of the upper aristocracy, but that's not the case because we had such a high, comparatively speaking, such a high literacy rate of individuals, uh, of settlers. We, it was not uncommon for individuals to be reading um, Ovid, to be reading uh, Metamorphoses, uh, reading, right. uh, you know, being very, very well versed in Greek classics. And, 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 and Roman classics, or you know, or and I, you know, that one of one of our great, um, great or infamous or both uh, heroes of Scotch Irish descent descent is uh, Andrew Jackson. Yes, and uh, it was just about just under a year ago that I got to walk into the foyer of the Hermitage. Yeah, and. <laughs> And suddenly be greeted. Now, for the record, I honestly was expecting more of a, and I love the Hermitage. I highly recommend anybody who's in the Nashville area to visit the Hermitage. But I was expecting uh, something colonial and stately. Mm -hmm. 
And I walk into the, the great foyer and granted the wallpaper was hand-painted in France and it's floor to ceiling and no two panels are alike because it is a mural. Mm -hmm. But I was taken aback because it is um, in the, the epic of Telemachus. And in all of, in all fairness, let's call it for what it is, in all fairness, in Marvel comic book color glory, I, I walked away from the mansion, uh, the Hermitage Mansion, going, if Andy Jackson had been born today, he would have been the biggest Marvel fan that you could possibly have imagined. <laughs> and, and, it, and, probably, and probably for the better that he was born when he was because we had Telemachus on the walls, uh, other than a, rather than a, <laughs> A, a former president's mansion that you walk in and have floor to ceiling murals of Iron Man. Because <laughs> that was what it reminded me of. <laughs> For the record, I loved it, but it was, I, I honestly, I was just expecting the, mm, the somber gravitas of, you know, colonial colors and and uh and stylings and that sort of thing instead i got and, well and talk about duality i mean the, this is the president who you know livestock while you know walked freely through the, the white house when, when he was there <laughs> so you know duality is definitely part of that character it is it is and uh you know I, I swear when uh, the White House was renovated and the Truman administration, that they probably picked some cheese out of something. I, I'm sure they did. <laughs> I'm sure they did. <laughs> Thousand pound block of cheese for the public. Um, yeah. Served in the White House when Andrew Jackson was inaugurated. And that, uh, well, you know, people's president. And it really speaks to the, the again, many of those, those qualities of the Scotch-Irish and, uh, you know, Ulster Protestants coming back to things that will be very familiar. And this is definitely an association with Arkansas, uh, but it's also, you can cross it right over into Missouri. Ulster Protestants included several Christian denominations that are commonplace today, uh, Church of Christ, Presbyterian, Baptist, and Methodist. Mm -hmm. And the the traditions the ulster traditions um will uh listed as quote unquote stringently individualistic protestantism hunting playing fiddle music performing buck or rhythmic step dancing and making whiskey it's I mean, you basically summed up the Ozark right there. Mm -hmm. And, and the, the complex dichotomy and the complex conflict that is innate even within those um, seemingly unified traditions. Yes, and that's, you know, it, it's just part of why they ended up really being at home here. Yeah, and, and 
uh, we're, we're dealing with peoples who, uh, and, and I would say, I would say that, that um, so many of the Celtic peoples, for whatever reason, I'm also speaking for myself on a personal basis, are drastically more at home in the hills. Mm-hmm. You know, we're, we're not peoples who are intrinsically drawn to wide open plains. I think this reason that the, um, you know, the, the Celts moved into, uh, nor into, into the Northern Alp regions in approximately 772 BC, uh, from the, the great grassland steppes of Eastern Europe. They were on their way through the grasslands. They weren't comfortable there. And they kept going until they had hills and hollers, even if those <laughs> hills and hollers were at the time in Austria. Exactly. <laughs> it's, it's fun talking about my ancestors. It, well, and, and uh, on kind of that note too, it, let, let's talk a little bit about the, as you said earlier, the spooky side of it, um, <laughs> which I think comes out um, in this. Um, for instance, magic, um, you know, Ozark folk magic really goes back to um, those roots, as well as some Native American and German German, Native American, and it to me, I think it is very fascinating because you see uh, these influences. You see the influences of the European influences. Um, you see the the rise of what would be classified as innately American folk magic or folk magic practices. Um, mm-hmm. Hoodoo, in particular, comes to mind. As, as having mm-hmm. strong influences elsewhere, but really coming into its, its own specific practice in North America. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> that in, in some cases you see a fusion, you see a hybridization of practice. In some cases you see the practices existing within close proximity but separately. Yes. And, and I find that um, really, you know, personally fascinating, um, but the, you know, what, and this also heavily influences quote unquote stereotypes, but has ex- an exceptionally rich um, heritage tradition that dates back millennia and whether mm-hmm. whether it is uh, a, a, an association with uh, Cherokee or Osage uh, or other tribal group practices or whether it is dating back to England or whether it's dating back to Celtic Britain or whether it's dating back to Germany we're, when we're looking at these practices and they're, where they're, uh, their ancestral line goes back to it is pre-Christian, it is, uh, you know, quote unquote, European paganism, uh, ancient and original European paganism, not a reconstituted um, 
uh, 20th century structure. And, right. And, um, you know, and that, <clears throat> so, you know, mixing pop culture here, one of the, one of the elements that you, you, you can't talk about hillbillies without, you know, from pop culture without talking about Paul Henning and the Beverly Hillbillies and Granny, Granny Clampett. Mm -hmm. And I think that there's a, mm, a, a an easy post-suburban contemporary displacement of culture that takes place because a lot of our very traditional um, hillbilly Ozarks gets relegated to really being dismissed or being regarded as a as a pop culture derogatory trope mm -hmm. when in reality it's a signpost it's it granted it can be a somewhat gimmicky signpost or a, a little um over the top in terms of its broad characterization for theater slash screen slash tv but it is pointing to uh, ancient traditions. It is pointing to heritage that we um, relegate, compartmentalize, and or dismiss at our own loss. And it also places us in a unique situation because our larger, uh, you know, politically correct culture is constantly saying that we need to you know, deeply respect traditions, we need to deeply respect uh, people groups, et cetera. Well, um, the, the truth is that, you know, as, as difficult as it might be for us to wrap our modern heads around, um, Granny Clampett's Midnight Moonlight Newt Hunt uh, from 1969 is a signpost to ancient pre-Christian paganism in mm -hmm. the hill. Well, it is, you know, it's exactly what it is. Um, and some people might be surprised at something that they do a few things that um, are a part of this tradition without thinking about it. Um, okay. Which, spilt, which ones, yeah, which ones come to mind? That's what I want to know. So spilt salt um, that, well, um, I, I know in the in the reference material they they talk about uh, leading to quarrels, but I, I know my grandmother's both you know spilt salt meant that you were going to lose money, um, or have bad fortune in business, um, and if you spilt salt, you threw it over your shoulder. So, and that was to protect you from evil spirit. Yes. <clears throat> it's you know the and, and some of these are so recognizable that they are dismissed as tropes and mm -hmm. uh, horseshoes over the doorway that being yep. um dominant but not only uh the iron uh to quote unquote prevent witches but also to ward against Mm, the fae yes yes and um um you can do uh horseshoes i've also seen iron door knockers mm -hmm. serve the same purpose uh if you ever uh if anyone 
wonders why someone might have a door knocker, a metal iron door knocker of some sort. Um, I've got one that's a a bird, um, horseshoe as well. So it's doubly safe, I guess. Um, but those are things that uh, people just think, oh, it's for luck, but they don't know why it's for luck, but that's why. Right. And, and I think that it's fair to say that most anything that we place under the umbrella of good luck, a charm, or a superstition has a, an ancient lineage to it that is going to date back to one typically really only one of three uh in three directions either um native american tradition uh african tradition or uh pre-christian pagan europe yeah very true very true one in the material that was mentioned that you know made me think of my one of my grandmothers was that you know a black button in your path um you don't want to pick it up because it's, you know, someone could be cursing, you know, trying to put a curse on you, which I guess hetzes is another part of this. Um, and um, anytime a, a button was on the floor, if a button on the floor, you didn't pick it up, you just swept it up with the, the broom and pan and threw it away. Mm. That. I don't have thought about that in, in a long time until I until I read this. So, <laughs> and my you know my my traditions that I that I grew up with, um, of course, salt. Mm -hmm. uh, salt being one of them. Um, that um, if your hand itches, you're going to get some money. If, mm -hmm. Um, if your nose itches, somebody's going to, someone's talking about you. Yeah. Uh, or they're going to come. That was, they're going to, to, to visit unexpectedly, which in my, in my grandparents' house, um, that was a no brainer. You know, there was constantly family members and friends stopping by unannounced. Mm -hmm. So it, it sort of fulfilled itself, but it mm -hmm. was. And then something that was interesting to me, my grandfather uh, was was uh, privy to so, some. It was a uh, extended or or associated family that uh, had a very strong Native American ancestry, mm -hmm. and they they had a tradition that that really confused my grandpa. Um, their one of their dogs that got bitten by a rattlesnake mm -hmm. and um and, and it's interesting because in reality it's it's the effect of sympathetic magic but uh the dog was bitten by a rattlesnake and when grandpa was like he was young at the time he's like is the dog okay and, and the response was the dog's gonna be fine because i got the snake before the snake got to water And for folks who know my grandpa, you know, knew my grandpa, it was like, what the hell's that got to do with anything? <laughs> uh, and and, uh, and my dad. <laughs> <laughs> a certain amount of pragmatic rationalism. Um, 
and uh, in my my uh, in another case, uh, a horse had uh, had stepped on a nail, mm-hmm. and uh, they got the nail pulled, and they took the nail, greased it, and put it on uh, over the door of the barn. Mm-hmm. And Grandpa's going, "What are you going to do with the hoof?" No, it's fine because we greased the nail. And uh, again, how's that got to do with it? (laughs) (laughs) But it is is a really interesting peek into the concept of sympathetic magic. Mm -hmm. It really is. I like that. I do like that. That was. And at least according to uh, one article that is part of our review material, American folk folk magic traditions at otherworldlyoracle.com. Uh, booger dogs are particularly innate to the Ozarks. Well, and that's because, well, that really comes from the Scottish influence because <laughs> yes, it booger, does. boogers are are Scottish paints, and booger dogs <laughs> are. They, you know, we thank we thank the Scots for that. <laughs> I Ironically, it's in the name. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, from from the from uh, Scots Gaelic "bogart," meaning a ghost, essentially. Yeah. And and that's the thing is that most people, you know, especially more, you know, they hear, you know, burger um, dog or. Uh, Burger County, which is Douglas County, uh, mm-hmm. people like ha 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 ha, um, yeah. but they're referring to hauntings, to to ghosts, yes. um, and um, so then you know I've had people go, well, why would D- Douglas County associated with that and or um, and my guess is if you if you look, there was probably a very uh, even more dense Scotch Irish population there than some of the surrounding areas. Um, it could be very very fair. Very fair. It is it's neat country over there. It it, it is. Um, so. I guess we should tell anyone that's not familiar of what exactly is a booger dog as far as what does it look like and if you're going to encounter it. Oh, well, it is a a (laughs) preternaturally large black dog that may or may not have its head. Actually, in a lot of the accounts from the Douglas County area, they, they are headless. Interesting, and uh, as well as boars, um, booger boars. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there is an association with the sighting as a death omen. Yes, uh, it's not completely conclusive, but it is definitely associated. And you really cannot. I mean, we'll dig into this in a, in a, in a follow up episode. We're we're doing this whole. Celtic collection series as we are marching towards St. Patrick's Day. Yes. And it's 
there and, and and I still contend and I, I find this mm, very very interesting so much of uh Welsh lore is you don't know that you're in the other world until you're already in it mm-hmm. and oftentimes it's rather fun and playful and interesting and there's delightful witticisms and happy endings and <laughs> then you it's very, very lyrical it's very poetic and um some of it is just downright sweet some of it isn't but a lot of it is and then you get over to ireland and it's concerning mischievous it might kill you it will probably trick you it will definitely dump you off in the in the, in the creek um mm-hmm and give you a bad give you a bad hangover uh give you a bad morning uh you know you you might wander off and dance with the fairies and come back and everyone that you know is dead because your one evening was a hundred years so there's that and then (laughs) to quote uh riff tracks in regards to hogwarts which interestingly enough is in scotland Mm -hmm. uh, when you get to scottish lore everything and we do mean everything will kill you it's kind of like australia it is it is it's just there to kill you <laughs> and <laughs> the the celtic lore um with with uh, with scotland in so many cases is, is is not lyrical it is not mischievous it is dark and it is deadly and uh, the, the, the booger dog is, is one of those in the sense, and, and haunting in the sense that it's not going to kill you, but you having seen it means you will die. That's right. It doesn't have to kill you. No, it doesn't. Um, and, and I guess we, we can tell um, the Civil War story from Douglas County. Uh, yes. That um, in... And there's versions of it that is a booger dog, and there's versions of it that it, it is a phantom booger hog, a wild boar. But um, the story goes that um, soldiers um, are in camp. They know there's going to be a skirmish the next day. And one of the soldiers sees the booger dog. And so he's convinced and during the war, the death omen usually meant if you saw it the night before battle that you would die in the battle, not just that you were going to die very quickly or very soon. Um, And so the man's terrified that he's going to die the next day. They get up, they end up in the skirmish. He survives and he's ecstatic. He's beaten the curse of the booger dog. And so they are in camp that night and he's rejoicing and maybe bragging a little too much about it. And after supper, he's cleaning his, his rifle and it goes off and kills him. Yes. The, the inescapability of fate. Exactly. And and a bit, a bit, a bit of you know, if you want to say a bit, a bit of irony and and wit in the way it was carried out. It is, and, and I think that it also speaks that there's a dichotomy there. Um, so much of 
zealous Christian Presbyterianism of the era was mm -hmm. about personal agency. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the idea that we, we make our own destinies, that we, we might submit to God in heaven, but there's nothing else that we have to submit to. Mm -hmm. And that I, I think it's one of the reasons why these types of stories have certainly they have a, an enduring impact on us, but they would have a, a, an especially powerful impact because it is introducing that dichotomy. It's introducing the inescapability of the fates. Very true. Very true. So tread lightly. Tread very lightly. And I think that that's, you know, because the, 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 the very essence of this zealous frontier Presbyterianism was not to tread lightly. You were going to, um, you were going to create your way. You were yeah. going, you were going to build your your farm, you are going to build your family, you are going to see this endeavor through no matter what the cost, you are going to achieve your personal agency, you are going to achieve your personal sovereignty, uh, which, are, which are all very powerful um, and, 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 and certainly seen as, as particularly American uh, ideals, the ideals of individuality, the ideals of personal property ownership, the ideals mm -hmm. that you you have a house, you have a barn, you have a field, and you are going to make your own way. And, and these are concepts that are in in uh, dramatic uh, conflict with this the 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 potentiality of the passive quality of fate. If, if fate has already decreed, what, what do we have to do with it? Exactly. And, <laughs> and, and, and I think that it, it really, it really the, the, the concept, which is a, a recurring concept in Scottish lore, as well as many others, but it definitely is dark and dominant in Scottish lore, is the death omen. Yeah, it, it, it's a big one. It's a big one, just as <laughs> Beth. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> the Scottish play. And the Scottish play, because you yeah. don't say his name. <laughs> no, no. And I think that's I think that's powerful. One of the things that is in speaking of speaking of death, um, one of the things that is uh, that that really got me particularly honed in on this on this subject a while back was making these points of comparison between um, traditional Celtic or Gaelic Scots um, funeral uh, traditions mm -hmm. and Ozark funeral traditions. And there are so many similarities. In many cases, you could just pick the page out of one and put it in the other. That, I mean, that, that part is true, yeah. And I, I find that haunting, but also weirdly reassuring. Yeah, continuity. Mm -hmm. and, <laughs> and the short version is you just keep the cats out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
that's usually that's, a good good um, good um, advice for for luck anyway <laughs> yes. uh, keep the cats out we need a t-shirt <laughs> put it on the list oh, i will i'll write it down um another thing that you know um is sort of interesting that people don't think about is divination um yes and i know like in the review material they they mention age shells and i have known people who would divine over uh age shells and literally you're looking you're looking at the pattern of cracks and and lines and coloration and really, it's no different than reading tea leaves. You know, we're more familiar with reading tea leaves, which is more from the Romani tradition. Um, mm -hmm. But it's pretty much the same thing. And another irony is that um, if you go back to Salem, Massachusetts, or New Salem, uh, to the witch trials in 1692, it all started over divination with AIDS. I, I had not realized that it was with eggs. I knew it was with divination. Yeah, um, the uh, the um, Jamaican slave servant um, Tishabu was um, had taught the girls to divine by break an egg into um, a bowl of water and the pattern that it would make as it spread out would foretell future and particularly it was a divination for uh, the girls to divine who their future husband would be. Yeah. Um, so um, this basically is a different form of divination with, with AIDS, but it's um, not, that, not that surprising that it, there's a similarity there to me. No. Not to me either, and you know, you, you don't necessarily know from whence exactly some of these draw in. Mm -hmm. uh, but, but again, you you're you're narrowing it down to uh, northern, you know, European pre uh, pre Christian paganism, um, West African tradition, or Native American tradition. And the Native American tradition in this case could easily have been Carib, um, you know. Um, uh, the Caribbean island traditions as well. Well, yes. Well, and specifically, you know, Tishabu was uh, was Jamaican, but had was had West African um, ancestry. So it's it's generally theorized that it that what she taught the girls came from the West African tradition. But mm -hmm. um, but you know, again, it it's similarity of practice, similarity of purpose tends to often have similar tools. It does, it does. You, you do see that, um, not cross-pollination, but the, the, the practice popping, various practices popping up uh, one from another. And, and interestingly enough, besides just the, the concept of folk magic practice, the use of uh, healing plants, medicinal plants, you see something very similar. It's easier to catalog that because we can actually tell what plants do what at, right. at this point. But 
I also find it interesting that from uh, West African healing traditions, Native American healing traditions and European, um, essentially uh, cunning folk, that there, there is a quality of magic, but then there's also a quality of quote unquote magic, which is actually um, essentially herbalism. Right, it's, it's, you know, folk medicine. Um, and some of it pretty effective. Yes. Uh, particularly uh, in times before antibiotics. <laughs> yeah, you know, and, and certainly there's a, um, you know, I, I employ um, you know, herbalistic tradition on a regular basis. Mm -hmm. uh, myself and to a certain degree grew up if not with the specific traditions grew up with the the ethic yeah the the idea and, and i found it interesting and I, i'm assuming other kids do this my uh, my older sister and i on, on a regular basis would pretend to make folk medicines out of various plants um on a, on a regular basis and we found it incredibly interesting and fun and we were playing mm -hmm. um, but we have both grown up to embrace the the the, the information uh, mm -hmm. so we're not playing anymore we're actually you know implementing things for our own use and it is a you know it is i, I would classify it as ancestrally satisfying I, I, I tend to I tend to agree. Um, some of those practices, you know, that my my mother had, um, it, it just seems to, seems to have a resonance that I can't explain. It's it does. It's it's very it is very odd. It's very difficult to really fully verbalize just how there's a there's a, a sense of full circle associated with it it really is really is um what would you say would be the the lore of this group of people that probably had the biggest effect on the Ozark, of their experience in the ozarks mm. i'm going to ask you the hard question okay well, um, you know, just just <clears throat> off the top of my head, I, I think the the lore of granny women, the lore of of uh, midwifery, and and uh, and healing traditions, is is something that was a was a constant substrate of traditional Ozarks culture. I think I think so, and with a very practical side to it, that you know you were on the frontier, and this kind of knowledge could be life or death. It could. I mean that, and and there there's also something I think is very powerful. Uh, the 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 tradition of granny women. There's a there's a, an essence of magic. Mm -hmm. um, and, and also a, 
almost a, a, a liminal space priestess quality. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that goes almost without saying. Because you're you're employing, you're you're asking for the granny woman's help uh, at these threshold moments, and you know threshold moments in life and death, and it is there is there is conjure involved. Mm -hmm. uh, there is very common sense uh, practices involved. Mm -hmm. There is divination uh, involved. There is the hint, if not the outright use of magic. Mm -hmm. But it exists outside of established academic civilization. Mm -hmm. But it is consistently allowed to exist within the structure of community and even the structure of zealous Presbyterianism church. Very true, <laughs> which can seem a misnomer, but it, uh, that, that is very true. I think in some ways, uh, a way of looking at it is it's a kind of a quiet version of what people see as voodoo priestesses um, in, in more modern popular culture now. Um, very, very similar, but it, it, it just wasn't put out there publicly no. the same way. No, and something that is, is an interesting point from that is that your your granny women your your healers in this tradition they might be um relegated to quote-unquote superstition but they have never been vilified in any large degree in popular culture true or that they haven't been feared in the same way i guess is probably the best way of, of putting it um yeah. and and um, but for the European culture um, in North America, um, it wasn't exotic. It wasn't the other where they where voodoo often is viewed that way, mm -hmm. um, even though there's so much similarity. Right. And well, I think that you could make a case um, um, for racial disparity. I think that it's also incredibly important to take into consideration that in, in Europe, and, and uh, we'll just use England and Scotland as a particular example, uh, a number of women practicing as what in, in North America would be called granny women uh, mm. were executed as witches. Oh. Definitely, um, and um, in some cases later than um, any witch trials in America. Mm -hmm. And I think that I, I think that something that really pushed pushes uh, acceptance and the refusal to vilify 
uh, granny women, particularly in the frontier, was the fact that they were necessary. Yes, you know, in times when you didn't have um, doctors and hospitals, and um, it, it was very necessary. Um, and um, often you would have a central location where they would you you would meet that granny woman it wouldn't necessarily be like going to her cabin even i mean it was a very community sanctioned practice and, and, and one that you know the the uh the practice did not um did not die out in the 20th century because of vilification it died out because of a transition to modern medicine yes yes and and it still persists in pockets mm -hmm. it does and i think that's powerful and uh, and and something not to be overlooked i agree that might be a a nice ending spot for tonight i think that's fair don't forget to check out upcoming events and merchandise at darkosarts.com and paranormalsciencelab.com. Thank you again to Always Buying Books and Beard Engine Brewing Company for helping to bring the Darkos Arts to everyone. On the next episode, we're going to be discussing trickster lore, and in some cases, trickster lore unique to the Ozarks. Catch the Dark Ozarks podcast on Branson Podcast Network, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Google Podcasts, or about any other podcast platform. Thank you, everyone. And remember, there are no easy answers in the Dark Ozarks.